Morning, Keystone Church. How y'all doing this morning? I know how three of you are feeling. How's the rest feeling? If you want to get your Bibles out uh, or your smartphone and turn to Luke chapter 23. Final few verses in that chapter. Is there anybody here who has ever been to Hitler's grave? Raise your hand. Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer of the Third Reich, Nazi, the cause of the death of six million Jews and countless millions others, World War II. Anybody been to his grave? Isn't that interesting? How many have been to Germany? Anybody been to Germany? Didn't find a grave there? That's because very few people have seen his body. In the final days of the Third Reich, Hitler was... Um, had been informed the Russian troops were on their way toward Berlin from the east. Allies were approaching from the south, west. And the director of his defenses in Berlin had told him they only had enough ammunition probably for one more day. It's 1945, April 30th. So in the very early hours of that morning, Hitler married his longtime mistress, Eva Braun, at a 2 a.m. breakfast reception for some friends and officials in the Nazi party. And then he and Eva and his German shepherd went into his bunker, into his personal office. About an hour later, a shot rang out. German officials ran in. Everyone was dead. The smell of almonds was in the air. Distinctive odor of cyanide. Hitler's gun was at his feet. That's what we know based on the records of a handful of Germans. Instructions have been given what to do with his body, and so officials doused with gasoline, set him on fire, buried him out back in a shell crater. When the Russians showed up a couple days later, they were nosing around, and they discovered several bodies behind the bunker exhumed them, and after intense <clears throat> excuse me, interrogation of Hitler's dentist's assistant, his dentist had fled, but his assistant was still in town waiting for her husband to return to the Nazi army. Eventually, it concluded based on those interviews that this was indeed Hitler's body. They buried him again. About a week later, exhumed the body again, reburied him in a different location, and a month later, buried him at a different location. This was all 1945. 1946, they dug him up again and buried him again. And in 1970, they dug up the body yet again on the orders of the highest people in Soviet Union, and they burned the remains to nothing and left the ashes go into the air. Now, a lot of this was because of Stalin's fear that if he was buried someplace or where people would know, they would come and neo-Nazis would make a shrine out of the place. And so they didn't want a place for potential fans to come and congregate. But the, it was interesting that nobody in the West had ever seen the body. And because of this, over the years, rumors abounded that Hitler had escaped, Hitler had defected, he had gone to Argentina, he was living uh, in disguise. Why? Because there wasn't 
a body. Two years ago, for the first time, the Russians allowed Western scientists to examine the only remaining parts of his body that they had, a jaw with Hitler's teeth in it and a portion of the skull. French scientists concluded after that that the teeth were indeed, based on records that they had, they were indeed Hitler's. The absence of a body, though, raises a big question mark. And my guess is you've never heard a sermon on the burial of Jesus. But now you know why the burial matters. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. So he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come, which apparently is an indicator that he was a follower of Jesus. He believed Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, we should know that Matthew tells us he was rich. He had a lot of money. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And then he took the body down from the cross, wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth, and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. And then they went home, prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, and so they rested as required by the law. And Father, I pray that this morning, as we listen to the description of what happened to your precious son, that we, your children, might grasp the glory and the wonder of what happened to your one and only son and realize and recognize and appreciate what ultimately took place for us because of what took place with him. So grateful for the hope that we have, not in a dead and buried Jesus, but in a dead, buried, and raised to life Jesus. And I pray that today, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether here in the auditorium or watching online, who are struggling with a, a, an unsatisfactory and maybe an unrealized Christian life, the kind that they thought they would have, that they haven't experienced, might find a new glimmer of hope in this burial, not only of the Savior, but of them in Jesus' name. Amen. So we first want to talk about Jesus' burial, and then we're going to talk about ours. Jesus was dead and buried. Now, Jesus' burial violated both Roman and Jewish practices. On that day, when Joseph went to Pilate and said, can I have the body? What took place after that would not have been in concert with Roman law, in concert with Jewish law. I want you just to imagine for a minute that you are Jesus' friend. And you are on that day responsible to take this body down off the cross. You are responsible to get it in proper burial. First of all, they would have gone to the cross. It was uh, uh, not only Joseph, but John tells us also his friend Nicodemus, also a council member, 
uh, two men who were members of the Sanhedrin, two men who were opposed to what the Sanhedrin had promoted in previous days, and two men who finally decided to come out of the closet as Jesus' followers, which is what they would have done in asking for the body. They're trying to take these nails out of the cross and to get Jesus' now deadweight body down off the cross and to do it in a tender way that would have been represented their honor of him. And then they carry it, blood, just covered with blood. You have to think that they tried to clean that body up before they put it in the tomb, and yet they've got a deadline. Sabbath is right around the corner, and they can't work on the Sabbath, and that includes taking care of a dead body. And so they probably washed the blood off of it, carried it into what was Joseph's tomb, laid him on this shelf, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and one of the other gospel writers tells us they put, the, uh, uh, they put a supply of spices on even as the women were going to bring more on Sunday morning. All of this had to be done quickly. Now, what was so strange about that, what I'm saying this violated Roman and Jewish practices. When Romans crucified someone, they were interested not only in inflicting the maximum amount of pain that they could, but in sending a message. They wanted to tell everyone who watched you don't want to do this. Not only inflict pain, but dishonor the life, the body, and the memory of this executed criminal. And so they would let the bodies hang on the cross even after they were dead. And of course, you can imagine what happened. Of course, the body would deteriorate, but not only that, it would draw vultures and birds and so forth until there was nothing there but the skeleton. And then they would take it off the cross. And so for Pilate to agree to give the body to Jesus' friends was very unusual. And the Jewish burial practices were if you were executed, if you were executed by stoning, which was the Jewish method, you would be buried not in your family tomb. You weren't allowed to be buried in your family tomb or, or in any conventional Jewish cemetery. You were buried outside of town in a particular cemetery reserved for stoning victims. And if you were executed in any other way, including crucifixion, you went to a different graveyard and had your remains buried there. And you certainly couldn't be buried in the family plot. And yet Jesus was buried in a place of honor, in a place of esteem. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but there are some people who believe that Jesus never actually died on the cross. And put this, put this group of theories under one, swoon theories. And when I was in my early 20s, I picked up a little book entitled The Passover Plot. It was written by a British scholar, Hugh Schoenfield, who argued that Jesus wasn't the son of God, but he wanted to be. He wanted to be the Messiah. And so he agreed with his men that he would go and actually be crucified <clears throat> and then using some medicine that had been given to him by Luke, which is one more hole in a story full of holes because there's no evidence Luke and Jesus knew each other, that he would take these drugs and he would appear to be dead. They would take him off the cross and then he would revive and he would appear among the people as a resurrected Messiah and they would all follow him and, oh, wow. The only problem is he miscalculated and he didn't count on a Roman soldier running a spear in his side. Now, there have been over two dozen 
people in the last 250 years who have proposed one or another swoon theories that Jesus only appeared to die. He was put into the cave, into the tomb where it's cool, and he was revived there. Of course, it doesn't really work because then he's out walking around two days later, and don't forget that he had a spike driven through both of his feet for six hours. Couldn't have been walking. Probably massive infections. He, of course, had lost incredible amounts of blood from the beatings, from the thorns, uh, from the whipping, uh, from the spear in his side. There's, there's no credible scholar today, whether they are Christian or atheist or something else, that believes that Jesus didn't die. The water and the blood that came out when the spear was thrust in Jesus' side was an evidence that he was dead. Not the blood, but the water. Doctors will tell you this. And the chain of custody of Jesus' body confirms everybody believed he was dead. So the Roman soldiers concluded he was dead. They put a spear in his side. There's no twitching. There's no reaction. They inform the centurion. He's dead. Joseph of Arimathea was there at the crucifixion. He goes and asks Pilate for the body because he saw that Jesus is dead. Pilate said, oh, is he dead already? Yep, he's dead already. Centurion, is it true Jesus is dead? Yep, he's dead. Okay, you can have the body. Nicodemus and Joseph take the body down. It's clear from the dead weight. It's clear from everything they see. He's dead. The women supporters from Galilee are there when they put Jesus in the tomb. And then what happens the Sanhedrin are terrified that Jesus is going to have his body stolen by his disciples so they could say what he claimed was he was going to do, that he would rise from the dead. And so Pilate gives in. He sends soldiers to the tomb of Jesus to seal the tomb and to guard it to make sure the disciples don't come and steal it. Now, there's something that's not in the scriptures that we know happened before the sealing of the tomb, and that is this. The disciples or the soldiers opened up the tomb. They rolled the stone back. And they made sure Jesus' body was there. How do I know that? Because if they would have sealed that tomb up, not made sure there was a body in it, and then opened it up days or weeks later, and there's no body there, those soldiers would have paid for that with their lives. And so before they sealed it, they made sure that Jesus was in there, sealed it, and then guarded it. So you see people from both sides of Jesus, supporters, those who loved him, as well as neutral people who didn't care, the Roman soldiers, the centurion, Pilate, as well as people that hated him, the Sanhedrin. All of these folks verified that we have a dead person. Jesus is dead and buried. And it is this... <clears throat> Because burial authenticates death, that burial, Jesus' burial, is a necessary part of the gospel. Let me have you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, <clears throat> beginning of verse 1, he is reviewing the gospel and what it is in verses 3 and 4. Let me start at verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news or of the gospel that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still, confer, st still stand firm in it. 
It is this gospel, this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. And now he goes and describes what the gospel is. And listen carefully. Because sometimes we, we, we clog the gospel with all kinds of things that aren't part of it. Here's the gospel. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was what? Buried. Oh, that's part of the gospel. We often have a two-part gospel, and I say this all the time. Jesus, the gospel is Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners like me. But that's a two-part. It didn't include, and it should, the burial. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture says. That is the gospel. Why does that matter? Turn to Romans chapter 6. Jesus was dead and buried, but because he was, your old life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your old life is also dead and buried. And we're going to talk about a hypothetical Christian this morning. Scott has been uh, a Christian for 12 years. And if he's honest with you, you sat down and talked to him privately one-on-one, and he trusted you, he would tell you he has not realized the Christian experience, at least not what he anticipated, not what he thought. When he hears people talk about the joy of being a child of God and a follower of Christ, he's like, I don't don't experience that. My life is kind of plagued by disappointment and discouragement. I struggle a lot with worry. And if he really trusts you, he might share some of his sin wrestlings. He's going to tell you, I've got a short temper And my wife and my kids pay the price for that more than anyone. Some other people as well, but that's where the worst is. Oh, and I I have a flirtation with pornography now and then. It's not a constant thing. I don't stay up till 2 in the morning online, but it, it happens sometimes. And these things in my life never seem to change. And here I am 12 years down the road from having met met Christ and I feel stuck. And I look at other people and they talk about the victory that they have in their Christian life and, and I don't experience that. They talk about the delight they have in Jesus Christ and I don't experience that. Now if you were the, the Christian sitting with them and having this face-to-face conversation, one of the first things you want, might want to do is find out whether or not Scott has realistic expectations. Does Scott have realistic expectations? Or has he bought into some aspect of a, a doctrine of called Christian perfectionism, for example? This is rooted in John Wesley and Methodism and the Wesley movement. That actually teach, and there's still some quarters of the church today, that actually teach that as a Christian, you can become perfect in this life. That that the life that we will eventually have with Christ in heaven 
we can have now while we're in Christ but not yet with Christ? Do you have realistic expectations, Scott? Or maybe it's not that you think that you can be sinlessly perfect, but you, you think that this should be, you know, kind of every day is, you know, unicorns and puppies. And you ever, you ever meet Christians that you ask them, how are you doing today? They never have a bad day. And I don't believe them for a minute. How are you doing today? Great. Wednesday. How are you doing today? Oh, awesome. Couldn't be better. I'm like, I want to talk to your husband. I want to talk to your kids. I want to talk to people who know you best. Is that just a facade? Do you just think that that's how you have to portray yourself as a Christian? Because people will think that you're not a Christian if you don't. Maybe Scott has some of that. Or, or maybe, he, he, maybe he feels like real Christians don't suffer with something like anger. On the other hand, as the conversation goes on, you might say, you know what? Scott's concerns are warranted. He is not living the Christian experience that the Bible tells us we can have. And then you might ask Scott, say, all right, tell me what have you done so far? What have you tried hoping to experience what you think other Christians experience? And he would tell you things like, well, for my anger, I got counseling. I found a counselor. I, I, I went for several months. And good things, I heard some good things, didn't really seem to change my life. With the pornography problem, I got, a, I got an accountability partner. And I set up with Covenant Eyes or one of the other software apps that, that shares whatever site you've been on with someone else that's checking to see what you're looking at online. As for joy, I listened to Pastor Keith's sermons from last year on joy. They didn't seem to help at all. I read a couple books on how to be happy in Christ and found some good things that I highlighted, but they didn't seem to make a big difference either. And as for worry, I memorized part of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, do not worry. And he tells us all how, how to defeat worry. Didn't seem to make much difference in my life. Now, every one of those things is helpful and valuable, can be. But if you would summarize all of those steps that Scott took, they all fit under the heading, Scott tries harder. Need to put forth a better effort whether it's memorizing scripture or whether it's seeing a counselor or whether it's getting a different counselor or whether it's getting a, a better accountability partner that really holds your feet to the fire or memorizing even more scripture. And many people have discovered in their Christian lives that this kind of try harder has been unsuccessful, unsuccessful in leading them to lasting change. And I want to raise the question this morning. I'm going to get back to burial in a minute. Is maybe the problem isn't just a lack of effort in Scott's life. But maybe it's a loss of identity. 
And now Pastor Charlie's paying attention. Romans chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. Paul says, well then, by the way, if I was... If a prophet told me I was going to be marooned in a desert island next year and I could take a hundred chapters of the Bible with me, I would take Genesis, I would take either Luke or John, I would take Ephesians, and I would take Romans. This book, if you believe the gospel and find it sweet and you want to believe it more deeply and want to find it sweeter, this is the book to devour, and especially chapters 6, 7, and 8. Paul says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Now, there are a number of instances in Paul's writings where it becomes clear that people have misunderstood his teaching on grace to mean that God has saved me through grace, uh, uh, by Jesus Christ, through grace, and that there's no merit of my own that I bring, and therefore that means that I can sin with impunity. Which is a reminder of two things. One, that's not what Paul teaches. But two, Paul teaches grace with such fierce determination that that can be the misunderstanding. And I think that's the way we need to teach grace as well. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? In other words, every time we sin, it puts God's grace on display because he forgives us. Should we sin more so God can be more glorified by dispensing more of his grace of course not since we have died to sin how can we continue to live in it or have we forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism we joined him in his death read verse 4 with me for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Let me just stop here for a minute. Because if you're not careful, you will think that Paul is saying that baptism saves you. We were put to death, buried, raised to new life by baptism. In baptism. And there are some Christian groups that teach this. baptismal regeneration the idea that when you get baptized you're saved I I baptized a woman in our church in in, um, uh, Michigan who was had come out of the Church of Christ uh, movement and the Church of Christ is one of a number of groups that teaches that you are saved only uh, once you get baptized I baptized her for the fourth time she was always fearful that didn't get it done right Uh, Paul is using here what in English is a figure of speech called metonymy. Metonymy means that a writer uses something related to a reality that he's talking about to represent it. And, And so he's referring to baptism as a means of summarizing conversion. So on September 12th, when we have a baptism at 4 p.m. Saturday afternoon down at the Bears Pond... And we put those people under the water and we, we ask the questions that we ask and we bring them up out of the water. They are not becoming Christians. They've already become Christian. But baptism portrays a spiritual reality that, that occurred when they came to faith in Christ. When they repented and they trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. 
And so when, when Paul talks here about dying with Christ and being buried, our old selves being buried with Christ and then a new life being raised up, he's not just using word pictures. He's talking about a concrete actual spiritual reality a transaction that takes place at a moment in time and it's supernatural let's keep reading uh, I'm going to read all four for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the father that wasn't a that wasn't a word picture Jesus was actually raised from the dead by the father now we also may live new lives so our new life is harnessed to Christ's new life. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves, the person I was, was crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. If you're a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. Say that with me. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am no longer a slave to sin. Say it like you mean it. I am no longer a slave to sin. I mean, isn't that good news? The, the, the jail cell door has been unlocked and opened. The handcuffs on our wrists have been loosened and taken off. No longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We have this new life. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Again, Paul is hitching us, harnessing us to Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, so how it affects him affects us. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, Jesus, when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. Now, now stop and think about that sentence. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. In whose life? In his? Did Jesus have any power of sin in his life need to be broken? No. He died to break the power of sin in your life and mine. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you, Christian, you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. In other words, this joy and this victory over sin that Scott seeks is possible because Jesus was killed and buried and raised to life and we too, our old lives have been killed, buried, and we now have a new life. Now, even though that jail cell door was unlocked and it's hanging open and we walked out, it's still open for us to walk back into if we choose. You see, what Jesus did when he died on the cross for you was open the door so you could get out. But he didn't slam it behind you. And in those moments, 
when something other than Jesus looks most appetizing. We can walk back and sell. The door's still open, but we can walk back in and play in the cell like we used to. Not because we have the old life, but because we see the old life, buried and dead as it is, as a carcass. And for some inexplicable reason, that gruesome, dead, buried, corrupted life for the moment looks more appealing than Jesus. But we don't have to live like that. And Jesus wants to ask us, and he asks Scott, why are you paying rent on that old dump when I've given you a brand new condo, pristine, has everything in it you can want, and it's fully paid for? Why do you keep going back to that dump? Now, you may believe this is true, but still wonder how Scott is going to get from where he is to where he wants to be. And maybe wondering that about you. How do I get from where I am to where I want to be? How do I get from where I was and embrace and enjoy the fullness of my inheritance? Here's what I think the problem is. I think the problem is that we do exactly what Scott does first most of the time. When we find ourselves stuck in sin, we run first to other people instead of running to Jesus. We bank on other people first instead of banking on Jesus. And we want, there might be a, a hundred reasons for that. But I wonder if at least some of it is not. That we like to go before people who are broken just like we are. And we know we'll get the sympathy there. But we'll never get the help there that we'll get with Jesus. We'll never get the help with people that we will get with Jesus. And that's why we should start with Jesus first. The counselors, the memorized scriptures, the accountabilities, partners, all of that, valuable. But it becomes the follow-up to going to Jesus. You say, well, what do you mean by going to Jesus? I mean good, plain, old-fashioned prayer. That we are broken by our brokenness and we are broken by our powerlessness and we go to the one who provides the power. Your accountability partner doesn't have any power. But Jesus does. And that we get on our knees before him and we ask for forgiveness, yes. But the forgiveness prayer is followed up with this clear acknowledgement, admission. God, I failed you again and I keep failing. I fail, fail, fail to win. 
And that declaration puts us in a position to do this. God, give me the power to do and to be the person you have made me to be when you killed that old me. We just don't think enough of prayer. It doesn't seem to be where the muscle is. And I want to tell you, that's exactly where the muscle is. And all the other try harder stuff comes after going to where the power is, Jesus. Forgive me. I keep failing to win. Empower me to do what I can't do on my own. And to change us, God does all the heavy lifting. To change you, God does all the heavy lifting. And if you're not being changed, I'm convinced, it's because you are looking in all the wrong places for change. But that's not to say that you don't have a role and that I don't have a role. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Paul said all this about the priority of the power of Christ in our lives, a new life that we now have. But he goes in verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. So I still have a role. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. You know, when we came to faith in Christ, Jesus did it all. The word for salvation that the Bible uses in Romans 3 is justification. We've been justified. We've been declared innocent. We've been declared righteous before God, based solely on the work of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Justification is a solo act by God. The sanctification of our lives, the ongoing making us more and more like Jesus Christ from the moment of justification until we go to be with Christ in heaven, that's a shared responsibility. God's doing that in our lives. He's sanctifying us. We are also being sanctified, and we are also sanctifying ourselves. So we are commanded. Every command in Scripture says that we have a role to play. Do not let sin. Do not let. Do not let. And then he says, so uh, you were dead. You were given a new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin no longer is your master, for you are no longer, you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, live under the freedom of God's grace. To change people, God does the heavy lifting, but he doesn't do all the lifting. But I hope that the message that you take home with you today is this. If I am to be changed, if I am to become the man, the woman, the boy, the girl that God has created me to be in Jesus Christ, it will, be, it will begin with Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I don't have a role to play, but my, my starting resolution is going to be on my knees before Jesus. That's where the hope begins, and that's where the transformation begins. Father, thanks for Jesus. <laughs> he did all the work to justify us. And he is now the powerhouse to sanctify us.
And I pray for us who know Christ and we kind of get stuck with the idea, well, yeah, he saved me, but now I, I'm on this self-improvement project. I'm on my own. I pray that we, like Scott, would grasp that when there is transformation that's needed, when there is a um, Christian experience that I long for and don't seem to experience, that Jesus is still the place to go to find that. He still offers me the transforming power that he offered me in saving me. And I'm so grateful, <laughs> so grateful at the end of the day. It's not on me, it's not up to me. It doesn't ultimately depend on me. It depends on Jesus. And there is no limit to his transformation power.